Snake Brown, Editor-in-Chief for ABC. Let's set the scene. Autumn, 1953, West End Theatre, London, final act of the late play. There's a free song of suspense rippling through the audience. Main protagonist, Detective Inspector. Why haven't I realised before? Injured victim. Why didn't you just open your eyes? Adversary, stroke, doppelganger. Placing musket softly but dramatically on the floor. So, you finally foiled me. I thought that stating the obvious would throw you off the trail. Simple but effective, knowing that you would doggedly follow instructions. Global child health, solar-powered oxygen concentrators. Pneumonia is the largest cause of child death in low- and middle-income countries. And, though falling, the global burden is still around 800,000 children per year, despite a steady decline since the introduction, particularly of the strep pneumoniae and Haemophilus influenza B vaccinations. Besides antibiotic resistance, lack of availability of oxygen in rural hospitals results in one of the major modifier contributory factors. Trevor Duke and colleagues evaluated a programme for improving reliable oxygen therapy using oxygen concentrators, pulse oximeters and sustainable solar power in 38 remote health facilities in Papua New Guinea. Consisting of a quality improvement spoke, identification of gaps, problem solving and corrective measures. The concentrators were powered by solar panels affording about three days autonomy. The mortality incidence rate ratio in the post to pre years of the program was 0.6 with confidence intervals not crossing one, one of several favourable outcomes. The design pre-posted course can't account for other temporal changes but the beauty of the study is its simplicity tapping into a natural resource, sunlight in this case, that in PNG, like many peri-equatorial countries, is constant and reliable. It's obvious that health facilities need a reliable source of power and oxygen to function, but as has been highlighted further in the COVID pandemic, these can be scarce resources. CF screening. The Cystic Fibrosis Blood Spot Screening Programme has been an outstanding success Screening largely consists of an immunoreactive trypsin, which if high is followed by DNA testing for CF transmembrane-related mutations. Most CF NBS false negative cases are due to an IRT concentration below the screening threshold. But, and here's the so obvious we didn't think of it before twist, that the accuracy of IRT results is dependent on the quality of the dried blood spot sample, which in turn is related to the volume. Ilo Duhl and colleagues tested contributors of false negative results in Wales over the period 1996 to 2016 with robust numerator data. Over the era of 673,000 infants screened, 239 were diagnosed with CF. That's approximately 1 in 2,900. The sensitivity of the programme was 0.96 and positive predictive value, as it should be in a screening programme, was moderately low at 0.48. 18 potential negatives were identified, 8 of which were excluded for other reasons, but of the remaining 10 false negatives, 9, in other words 90%, had a low dried blood spot IRT as a result 
of insufficient sample size or volume. So the study reaffirms the adage about even the obvious needing to be stated at least once. To my mind, this raises two additional immediate questions. Shouldn't the test taker, and this is easier said than done, be retaking those cards in which the diameter of a spot suggests inadequate sample volume? An extra heel click, but look at the dividend. And should the lab actually be analysing these rather than sending them back for a fuller sample? Overdiagnosis of preschool obesity. So the popular exhortation goes, inverted commas, no examination is complete without a complete centile chart with standard deviations. So often heard from the well-intentioned supervisor. No one would disagree in principle, but during an ongoing non-corona related pandemic, obesity deserves a re-examination. Why now? Because the epidemic of obesity starting in infancy doesn't quite ring true, given the tendency to regress to the mean in young children as they get older, and the natural increase in standard deviation, obesity-thin cutoffs with age. Charlotte Wright's persuasive viewpoint argues the case for an alternative to the standard deviation and centiles in young children. The issues stem partly from the thresholds having been extrapolated from adult high-risk standard deviations above the mean. This, though, doesn't quite make sense either. The trajectories are hard to predict, and the BMI-Z score starts to change much later in childhood. So the case is presented for the mathematically more stable in preschool children relation by percentage of the median. Data from the Gateshead Millennium Study demonstrate the differences at the age of two and a half. The proportion above the 91st centile was around 25%, while using the alternative approach where this cutoff corresponds to a 1.2 or 120% of the median. The proportion is only 6% in boys and 8% in girls. This isn't advocating for the abandonment of the height and BMI to inherently more complicated, less expensive and time-consuming alternatives like skinfold thickness, bioimpedance, hydrogen-labeled water or MR imaging for acetylomic fat. These could be equally susceptible to the same issues with mean and SD. What is clear, though, is one should understand the limitations of any tools, whether charred or lab-based, in the context in which they should be interpreted. They are, like everything else in life, fallible. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the website adc.bmj.com for more. I'll see you next time. Bye for now. Thank you.